This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell. Hey, glad you're with me. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the questions during the pandemic that keeps coming up for me is, what are my rights under the charter? I mean, can the government really force me to get vaccinated or can I lose my job, my livelihood if I don't, even if I work from home? But I also have questions about the government's right to restrict speech. Or what about if you've been waiting a medically unsafe time for a medical procedure, can the government actually mandate that you can't access a private facility? I mean, the bottom line, I think most of us don't maybe get clear understanding of what the law says about our individual rights under the Charter of Rights. Well, today I'm going to talk to a legal expert about that. Now, I don't want to talk to politics. No, I just want to know what my rights are under the law. And whatever your political views, I think it'll be a benefit for everybody. I also am going to talk to trader extraordinaire Tyler Bullhorn. I ask him to share some of his trading and investing secrets that I think any one of us can use to improve our returns. And I'm going to be talking real estate, one of the most uh, unique aspects. It's fascinating of the real estate market with Ozzy Jurek. Plus, I've got Justin Smith, president of Hawkeye Wealth. He's looking right now for places to invest, millions in new projects. Well, I want to find out from him what criteria he uses when he's looking for a new project. Plus, I've got a goofy award that should include maybe a big flashing red warning sign. And don't miss the quote of the week on what politicians refuse to tell us on all of the biggest issues of the day. But first, you know what? This must be a heck of a program if I start with a cliche like, Houston, we've got a problem. So forgive me, but let me elaborate with a question. Can you name the central banker, the finance minister, maybe a president, supreme leader, prime minister, or any of the elites at the World Economic Forum who forecast the recent explosion in energy prices? Did they see coal going up over 250%, natural gas, gosh, up 500% in Europe and parts of China? Did they predict the supply chain issues or semiconductor shortage, which has caused companies as diverse as Apple and General Motors to cut back prediction? Uh, production. Did they predict that? Well, they didn't know the impact of the lockdown on uh, policies on supply chains. I'll tell you that. Maybe more accurately, they didn't consider it. As Melinda Gates said in a New York Times interview, in quotes, what did surprise us is we hadn't really thought through the economic impacts, end of quote. We have a prime minister admits he doesn't think about monetary policy. Come on, doesn't think about interest rates, sovereign debt, inflation, currency values. And speaking of inflation, I think it's pretty obvious that the central banks and politicians have underestimated the strength of inflation and length of time we're going to be dealing with it. There is also no central banker or politician, no one in the Davos Build Back Better crowd, who predicted the collapse of the credit markets in September 2019 and the 500% increase in overnight rates in a matter of hours. No sign they predicted the massive price increase in agriculturals or copper or other commodities. They didn't see the record high in commodity index which takes into account the price of 23 different commodities. Look, I can keep going on with example after example, but my point is they didn't predict any of these profoundly significant moves, moves that dramatically impact all of us, all of our businesses. And by the way, the only reason to listen to Money Talks is that we did identify every one of those trends, but that's not the point. You see, whether you did or didn't, We're not the ones saying, as the Build Back Better or big government crowd is, that we want to reinvent capitalism or reimagine the economy. We're not the ones saying we want more control over the economy. They are. They're already changing the monetary system with record borrowing and spending on top of the already record sovereign debt. And you've got the unfunded liabilities for government promises that have been made without money set aside. I mean, it's absurd to pretend, as they have, that there are no consequences to the massive debt buildup facilitated by the unprecedented central bank manipulation of interest rates. I'll repeat, it's absurd. I mean, we can debate the specifics of those consequences, i.e. more inflation, continued asset price increases, or default on the debt, or cut back on entitlements and the accompanying deflation. But to pretend there are no consequences? Come on, that's nonsense. But my question is, given they haven't predicted a single major economic financial event, or look at the massive political changes they didn't see coming, like Trump or Brexit or China's takeover of Hong Kong, my question is, how can they be so arrogant as to think 
They can reinvent the economic system with them in charge. As Nazim Tlaib, author of Fooled by Randomness, by the way, called one of the 75 smartest books in history, he summed up the Davos crowd in quotes, these self-described members of the intelligentsia can't find a coconut in Coconut Island. Well, can you imagine betting on major sporting events and getting everyone wrong? Well, that's what they've done financially. These are major events and they miss them. I wonder what point a little humility would inform their thinking. I mean, their arrogance and self-delusion is astounding, or maybe it's just lust for power. But whatever the reason, we all better protect ourselves. There's no reason to think they're going to start getting it right now, that they're going to start seeing the consequences. Because it's not going to matter what party you like or what politics you decide you're in favor of. There's going to be financial roadkill. There already is, by the way. But my hope on Money Talks is to do what I can to make sure it's not you. But if your politics are more important than you or your children, grandchildren's financial well-being, then I say good luck because you'll need it. Politics is how we got into this problem. And the track record suggests, well, it provides compelling evidence. It isn't how we're going to get out of it. I got to say, one of the things that's occurred to me over the last, well, year and a half of the pandemic on occasion has been, hey, is that against my rights? Can they do this against my rights? I mean, most recently, we're talking about vaccine mandates, people losing their job. Can they really lose their livelihood because of a government edict? Now, it's a broader issue than that, though. I mean, I'm talking also about free speech. I'm talking about uh, a government who can say no to me using a private clinic when I've waited over a year for some sort of uh, orthopedic surgery. And I just, it occurred to me that I'm not really crystal clear in what our rights are, in quotes, with the Charter of Rights. And that's why I thought this would be a great segment, because I'm reading a lot, uh, whether it's on social media or in the mainstream media. I'm not sure we all understand that. And I thought it would be worthwhile. I'm not talking about the politicization of this. I'm not talking about trying to make a political statement. I just want to know, as a Canadian, uh, what do the Charter of Rights sort of protect me with? And Robert uh, Grant is a name partner of Gall, Leg, Grant, and Zwack. And I'm so pleased, uh, Rob, that you found time to talk with us today. And so let's start with that. Uh, what do you think may be the biggest misconception when somebody walks around going, that's against my rights? Well, the, the starting point is what they mean. And certainly if they mean that the Charter of Rights, the, the rights that are protected in the Constitution, what I expect a lot of people don't know is that there's two components to it. The first is there's sections that guarantee rights, for instance, the right to freedom of expression, life, liberty, security of the person, freedom of religion are all guaranteed. But the Canadian Charter, certainly unlike the American Bill of Rights, but similar in some respects to the European uh, Human Rights Charter, has a qualification. And it says that even if your rights are violated, the government can still maintain a law and enforce a law if it's demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So every single case involves, if it goes to court, the court balancing the infringement of the right against some larger social goal or interest that the government might have. Usually, protecting the interests of other Canadians. Well, one of the things that when I, when I see interviews with members of the public in, at some of these protests, for instance, there seems to be a sense that rights are absolute and no understanding that rights have always in, in, in every country have been understood to be rights in the context of a larger society. And rights have always been limited to the extent that the exercise of a right harms others. And then we have to draw lines. And, and we know that you, you don't have a right to go and punch someone else. And that seems obvious to us. But almost all rights are like that. The, the exercise of a right has effects on other people and often negative effects. And so the concept of fundamental rights has always involved some sort of explicit or implicit balancing. And I, I don't think a lot of people understand that. 
I mean, and obviously in this case, uh, you know, if you talk vaccines, because that's been in the news, it's the greater good health uh, regarding health, et cetera. Uh, but free speech, you just mentioned there, my, my right to freedom of expression, I would suspect that could get challenged, uh, you know, in court also on the basis, because we certainly have moves under Bill C-10, Bill C-36, that are, you know, every, every expert I've read in the country says are going to restrict my right to free speech, and uh, and again, it sounds like though in the states it's a different ball game as you just alluded to, that uh, and maybe that's what we're influenced by. We watch TV or hear their news, and you know, lots of debates over what their rights are. But you're saying this is slightly different in Canada. It, it, it is absolutely. Now, I think there's a misconception about rights in the United States as well, because even there the rights aren't absolute, but the courts there, as a result, engage in something of a an analytical game that instead of doing what we do in Canada and overtly balancing the infringement against the social benefit, if there is one, in the United States, they engage in an exercise of trying to redefine the right so that it doesn't cover certain things. And the, and the classic one, you mentioned freedom of expression, the classic one in the United States is you don't have a right to shout fire in a busy theater when there is no fire. And, and just generally rights that would or exercise of freedom of expression that would endanger others. They just say that's not part of freedom of expression. Whereas in Canada, we, we have a very broad conception of expression. It's essentially any attempt to convey meaning is expression. And then almost all the work in freedom of expression cases is on the justification side. Would it harm others? Would it incite violence? Those kinds of arguments. And, and if the, the case is strong enough, then the, the, the violation of freedom of expression is found to be justified. Uh, let me come to another aspect of healthcare: is that uh, some people would say it's my right in the way they're meaning. They're meaning, again, they thought they had protections uh, to seek out private care when I've been forced to wait to. Uh, you know, as I say, a year for orthopedic surgery, and I'm uncomfortable, and my life quality of life has been uh, damaged. Uh, from my understanding, we've had two cases that I'm aware of, uh, one in the sh- famous Shawili case, where the two, ju- two out of the three justices ruled that there was no justification for uh, the prohibition on private care if somebody had to wait, and we had one in uh, B.C., a little more tricky. Uh, there's a lot of, and I know this is oversimplification, but uh, again, I'm just looking at, it's interesting for if you ask normal or average person who's not versed in the law as you are, they would think it's their right to get treatment if they're in, if they're suffering. Well, well let me just start by saying I, I was involved in the, in Brian Day's case at the Supreme Court at the trial level. And I can tell you that personally, I, I think his case is overwhelming. And and the starting point is exactly the same, as I said. There's a subtlety when you're dealing with uh, life, liberty, and security of the person. I d- I'm not going to go into it because yeah. it's a subtlety that interests lawyers and judges, but probably no one else. But the starting point is, does a prohibition on private health care or access to private surgery violate life, liberty, or security of the person? And security of the person uh, requires some explanation. It's been found to mean an individual's control, certainly over their bodily integrity, but usually their health, um, their physical condition, uh, really anything to do with medical care would typically fall under security of the person. And we were able to show absolutely that, and the judge agreed with us on this point, that prohibiting private health care in the face of exceedingly long waits in the public system for many, many uh, types of surgery, well beyond the government's own uh, designated maximum acceptable wait times, was a violation of security of the person. So all of the work in that case was then, what's the justification for prohibiting private health care? And the argument uh, was that only by prohibiting private health care could you protect the integrity, efficiency, fairness of the public system. Now, I, I, that case is on appeal now. I thought the judge's reasons were, were unpersuasive. And the most obvious 
proof that that's wrong is that every Western European country, Japan, New Zealand, Australia, the UK, because maybe you don't think of them as being in Europe anymore, every single one of those countries has a universal public health care system. Most of them, when measured objectively, are better than Canada, and all of them have access to private surgery. So we know as a fact that a, a vibrant, universal public health care system is entirely compatible with private surgery. But in any event, the, the judge didn't agree with us. So we're, we're off, and I expect that case will find its way in the Supreme Court of Canada someday. Let, let me bounce back to, again, it's in the news. It's about vaccinations. And again, I'm not debating whether there should be a mandate or not. I'm looking at the legal sort of aspect of this. Uh, just looking at a, a Blacklock reporter came out with uh, uh, one of their stories talking about the Canadian uh, Department of Health wouldn't comment, uh, but on a, uh, one of their own paper, though, in 1996, it said, unlike some countries, immunization is not mandatory in Canada. They don't want to comment on that now, obviously, in the current political environment, uh, reading other things. Uh, and Blacklock's again saying that no federal employee will be fired under a Treasury Board vaccination policy, according to internal documents. This is where it gets confusing for individuals. It's, you know, bottom line is, can they force you uh, with threat of uh, losing your job to get vaccinated? And it looks like there's still some confusion over that. And I'm just wondering, from just the legal standpoint, where will that rest? So I, I think it's a, it's a fascinating question. And I would say the starting point is any uh, government program that in, in any way coerces, whether you call it mandatory or not, but coerces people into, uh, into taking a medical procedure, including a, a vaccine, I would say almost certainly violates uh, security of the person it also, and this is a more complicated issue, so I'm not going to get into it, but there, if, if you have religious beliefs that are opposed to it, that triggers a freedom of religion argument. And it's more complicated because we sometimes allow religious exemptions. So I'm going to deal with uh, security of the person, which applies to everyone. So again, in, in looking at any kind of, of coercive policy to compel people to be vaccinated, all the work is going to be done on the justification side. Can you justify this intrusion into a fundamental right for some larger public good? And what's interesting to me is that the model that's been adopted so far by the federal government is not, in a sense, a public health uh, criminal law uh, exercise of its jurisdiction. In effect, mandating that everyone in Canada get vaccinated. They, they have the constitutional jurisdiction to do that, but then they would have to justify a universal rule. And uh, I suppose if you could show that the prevalence of COVID was so widespread, it was so lethal, it was so damaging to the health of others, you might be able to justify it. But instead of doing that, they've gone down this employment route using their jurisdiction over federal employers. And what's interesting to me about it is the initial rationale, I think, for doing that was in a way the justification is easier because you could say what I'm doing is protecting the other employees in the workplace and Canadians who interact in person with federal government employees and protecting their health. And they'd have to make out the case that uh, widespread vaccination reduced the risk of contracting COVID and so on. The part that's interesting to me is, if I, if I understand the policy correctly, is it applies even to federal employees who are working from home. And at that point, they really, to defend that, that component of it, they would really have to invoke this larger justification of everyone should be vaccinated for the protection of everyone. It's not then just about their the other federal employees and their customers. So I, I find that interesting. That might well be one of the angles of attack if, as I expect, someone challenges it. And, and just speaking, uh, 
and, and again, I'm asking to put a crystal ball on this one, and it's not what outcomes, but do you expect to see a lot of, uh, you know, legal action around all of these issues? Do you, is this going to further clarify what really is in the, the Charter of Rights and we'll get a better understanding because uh, this is going to get tested? Uh, and all of these, all of these bases. So I talked free speech a moment ago. I talked uh, my right to a- access private care if I've been waiting and languishing on a wait list. And, and obviously the vaccine mandate, uh, another side effect there or another uh, sidetrack there. Do you expect to see a lot of legal action around all of this stuff? I, I would have thought so, but I, I wonder whether it's difficult uh, to find a group with the resources to pursue it. For instance, you think of the employment context, the, the federal rules. Typically, it would be the, the federal trade unions who would fund challenges if they believe that their members' rights are being violated. But I expect there's a certain degree of political pressure on trade unions not to pursue a policy that probably most of their members favor. They, they probably like the idea that everyone that they're working with is vaccinated so we may not see it brought by the, the trade unions. You often see it brought by other groups who simply fund uh, charter cases because they're interested in preserving liberty, but they may find it difficult to find a representative. I actually expect that the cases that we're more likely to see coming forward will be the freedom of religion cases, because there are some religious organizations who already have defied some of the requirements And freedom of religion, as I said earlier, raises a different kind of charter argument. Uh, Again, freedom of religion has been interpreted very liberally by our courts. You don't have to prove that it's a a deep tenant of an established religion. You simply have to prove that it's a sincerely held belief that's rooted in your religious belief. And then all the work is on the other side of, of justifying it. Well, they're going to understand it a lot better after you uh, favoring us this your time. Robert Grant, name partner, Gall Leg, Grant Zwack. Robert, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. You know, one of the things that's so interesting about the real estate market is we have a tendency to think locally, of course, where we live. But we've noticed, of course, that we've seen a broad-based rise in Canadian housing prices. I mean, coast to coast, not just the old centers of Hamilton, Toronto, Vancouver, but that's a global phenomenon too. And I want to get Ozzy Jurek in here, ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, yeah, I mean, you've been telling us about this for ages, but boy, you look around the world and you've had this explosion in housing prices. Yeah, and the UBS, the Global Real Estate Bubble Index, just came out yesterday and and they have sort of an index where they take the most likely city to be in bubbles. And the funny thing was, I used to argue with my German friends, and I said, Ozzy, you don't understand. Germany will never go up in price. We have rent control. You know, we have never seen higher prices. In fact, uh, the mayors of our cities uh, have uh, uh, conditions where the tenants have uh, action groups. Well, the funny thing is, with all that, who is the number one city in a bubble in the world today? It's Frankfurt. <laughs> then guess who's number two? Toronto. Number three, of course, Hong Kong, four, Munich, Zurich is five, and then Vancouver is six. So the UBS considers us to be in a bubble. Now, what that means, and they have a great report, and I urge you to maybe go to the UBS uh, site and, and take a look at that. But they just made some interesting point that the record low financing costs, the entrenched expectation of long-term value gains have made owning a home so appealing that the price level doesn't seem to matter. And, and as I say, it's, it's long-term. I mean, one of the things, and, it's, and we can bring it back local for a second or back into Canada for a second. I mean, uh, it seems to me when you start getting this attitude, Aussie, where I better buy today because it's going to be worth more tomorrow, or, you know, literally, but, you know, a year from now or two years from now, that's when you really get these big price uh, moves. Well, and the thing is, UBS also comes up saying that the worsening affordability and unsustainable mortgage lending worldwide, they call it, and this rising divergence between prices and rent have historically served as forerunners of a housing crisis. So we still got to be careful. Interesting, yesterday, Benjamin Tall, the head of um, CIBC um, um, uh, uh, economy uh, forecast, he came up with the, the thought that, or the facts that 25% of all 
Canadian first-time buyers are now getting the money from their parents and 35% have their loan co-signed by their parents. And the parents' idea is better get them into the market now. Yeah, I was going to say, I can imagine how many listeners are nodding their head when they hear those stats and thinking, hey, that's me. That's why I, I co-signed or I put the money down, et cetera, that way. But you know, the other thing that we keep coming back to is one of the things that kills me, and this is me saying it, not Aussie Jurek, but wow, for all the concerns about affordable housing, and when I hear a politician talk about it, I, I just can't believe how few Canadians seem to understand that that comes back to government policy. Ozzy just refers to record low interest rates. That's obviously been a huge driver here. Uh, you go down the municipal level, zoning laws limit supply. That happens. Uh, immigration policy bringing in uh, you know hundreds of thousands of new people. They need to live somewhere, and they haven't coordinated that. I'm just saying. I'm just amazed at it. And I'm coming back to you know we got what 400,000 people coming in. You've got rental you know students coming in back from overseas, and and that's going to be a bigger pressure so rents are going to go up yeah the interesting thing is mr tal also echoed that and, and you and i have talked about it that we always have government stimulate the demand we're going to build this and you have to do that and not and they have this grandiose idea and a billion here and a billion there but it doesn't get down to the municipal level because that's where we need to have flex, more flexible zoning we have to add supply in his view actually that government is actually stimulating demand because but at the, because supply is not coming. And therefore, all of these things will actually add to demand, meaning higher prices, et cetera. I just only a minute or so left. But so this is a little superficial. But I'm also looking at the property problems in, in China that Evergrande, of course, got the headlines. But there is others that are coming forward now, haven't paid their bills, et cetera. But the implications can go far outside of China. I'll give you one quickly. Uh, it could hit the commodity markets because demand out of Chinese development companies will be reduced if they're not going to build as much. But it also is, uh, you know, who's got bank exposure there? The list goes on uh, uh, about that ripple effect. So maybe that's what, uh, you know, yeah. some of the people are worried about a bubble are looking at. I'm looking at, uh, I'm writing in my Osbaz right now, which will be out tomorrow, but that Evergrande talks about China all the time, 300 billion in debt and so on. But people forget they have 1,300 projects in over 280 cities, notably in London. And when you look at the Kaiser Group, which was the first Chinese real estate company to default back in 2015, that saw some of its dollar-denominated bonds this week go up to 35 cents on the dollar. And by the way, Kaiser has 3.2 billion of bonds to repay next year, which is second only to Evergrande. And so now what happens is that all of these projects will stop being built, which will have an impact on those markets like London, which you wouldn't even have thought about for a moment uh, that this is a Chinese issue, all of a sudden becomes an exported Chinese issue. The 5 trillion Chinese property sector accounts for a quarter of the, the Chinese economy. Now imagine that they have now junk, junk bond rated price to pay for new capital, 24%. Wow. That should have been my shocking stat. Why didn't you let me know? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great shocking stat and the kind of thing you can get at ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. Great stuff, Ozzy, and it's interesting. Every one of those things we just talked about have legs. We're going to be having to talk about that because this is significant stuff that's taking place. Uh, and you, as you just pointed out, we may be talking real estate, but the implications overall, when you look at the Chinese economy, you look at the ripple effects throughout the banking system, other developments, demand for commodities. This is big time stuff. You can keep updated at ozbuzz.ca. Thanks, Ozzy. Thanks for having me and everybody have a wonderful week. Time now for the quote of the week. You know, I've got to admit, one of my frustrations is not difference of opinions. No, it's dishonesty in the public discussion. As the Wall Street Journal's excellent columnist Peggy Noonan says, nowadays we don't even have the expectation that our politicians are telling the truth. I'm not even going to give you examples because there's so many. But I will point out that it doesn't seem to bother the majority of the people as long as it's their political favorites misleading the public or outright lying. You know, and then there's the over-the-top misleading spin. Well, let's throw that on. It's just oozing with BS. Absolute drivel that reworks reality to suit a particular political agenda. I'll give you a quick example because I actually laughed out loud when I heard it, although it's a tragedy. It came from the President Biden's press secretary, 
Jen Psaki, whose job, like every other press secretary for the president before that, is to shovel it thick on the plates of the public. But she was asked in the aftermath of the evacuation of Kabul, you know, remember, there were tragic pictures of desperate people hanging from airplanes, taking off, falling to their death. Ms. Psaki declared that the evacuation couldn't be called anything else in quotes, but a success. Well, I think there's several people who disagree. But we're treated to BS-laden declarations all the time by governments on every major subject. And that brings me to the quote of the week. In this period of skyrocketing energy prices, we were never told that the raft of climate change-related regulation on fossil fuels could have consequences. As Forbes' David Blackman states, in quotes, every new regulation, no matter how noble-minded, has a cost. And the energy transition has already demanded wave after wave of new regulation on fossil fuels. Claiming these actions bear no cost or consequences is simply absurd. End of quote. Yet, you know, that absurdity is seen in so many subjects, whether we are talking about fossil fuel restrictions, but about the implications of record government borrowing or the impact of excessive taxation. We never get told the risk or the potential fallout or consequences. They're never mentioned. I've been looking forward to getting a chance to talk with Tyler Bullhorn, stockscores.com, one of the premier, well, I'd call him uh, investment trainers in the country, trading, uh, you know, he's got a best-selling book called The Mindless Investor. Uh, So this is a guy that I turn to. He's got so much experience dealing with individuals like all of us and teaching them how to trade the markets. And this is a perfect time, Tyler. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, great to be with you again. I want to start with, I, I know it's a broad question, but We talk so much about how COVID has changed uh, maybe the workplace, you know, working from home. We talk about how COVID has certainly impacted a lot of the lifestyle changes. What about the impact of COVID on the stock market? Well, you know, it's maybe counterintuitive, but COVID has been absolutely fantastic for the stock market. The, The market that we've had since March of last year, has been you know one of the best in 20 years really going back to the tech bubble that we had at the end of 1999 the opportunities that have come with covid in the stock market have been outstanding and, but it's so different it seems to me about like well, of course i think it grabbed people's attention it could have grabbed it earlier i know uh with robin hood but it really seemed to grab the headlines uh with the trading the reddit trading with uh you know blackberry amc theaters uh, all of those kinds of stocks, the meme, memes, meme stocks. Yeah, I mean, that was a big headline story in the market because you had massive numbers of retail traders coming into the market and they were playing a relatively small list of stocks that came from the Reddit group uh, called Wall Street Bets. And there's now over 10 million people in that Reddit you know, chat group. Uh, but it's been more than that. It's not just that small number of stocks in, the, in that uh, chat group, but um, every day there's hot stocks. And it, again, really reminds me of the late 90s and going back to when I started trading on the late 80s even. It's been fantastic. Well, one of the things, I mean, one of the things that are fundamental to your approach and stockscores.com approach is you look for unusual trading. And I would think this would be a heck of a, you know, volume developing. And you're going, well, the market already understands what's going on. So let's just pay attention to that volume figure. If something unusual happened, my goodness, I bet you've been run off your feet in the last 18 months. Yeah, and it's certainly risen and fallen with cycles through the COVID recovery. But that is always the key. Um, I'm always looking for abnormal activity. It's our clue that there is alpha. And by alpha, I mean the ability of a stock to trade on its own story to move faster than the market. You know, before COVID, you'd get three to five big movers a week. Now you're getting three to five big movers a day. And that's, you know, long after the COVID recovery. Now, certainly last year was even better. Um, In the months right after the COVID crash, it was just like, shooting fish in a barrel, it still remains good. There are still stocks that are being chased by the millions, and really it is millions of new traders that have come into the market, people that are sitting at home. Maybe they don't go to their job like they used to, and they are trading the stock market. And uh, maybe that's one of the reasons we have a shortage of workers and 
you know, in, in the service industry in places like Whistler and that sort of thing. Just elaborate a little bit to me. You're, I, I don't know, this is ridiculous to say this in sort of a Barbara Walters, give me 60 seconds, but uh, just get, uh, remind people or introduce people to the approach you guys take at stock scores. Well, it's all about abnormal activity. So I don't trade on hunches. I don't trade on what people tell me. I trade on what the market tells me to do. And my basic philosophy is that there's always some people that have better information than others. And, you know, these large investment funds, they have the resources to dig up better information than I could or than most people could. Well, when they find something that is good, they start buying that stock aggressively. And in doing so, they create abnormal activity. The stock trades more volume. It trades price action that is abnormal. And basically what I did is I wrote some computer algorithms that go through the entire North American stock market looking for abnormality. And, you know, I gave up trying to know the story of these companies a long time ago because by the time the story's out, the stock's already gone up a lot. And the reason it's gone up a lot is because some people just latch onto that story. They have better information than others and they do it first. And so I follow them. I don't wait for the headlines. I don't wait for people to be chatting about it. I, I lead the crowd um, by following market action. That's a perfect lead-in, by the way. Uh, I don't want to digress, but I want to say right after today's show, Tyler's going to be doing a webinar. It's absolutely free. You just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. This is one of the things I absolutely love about doing the program. We're trying to help people be successful. So we asked Tyler if he would do a, a webinar for us. And the webinar, simply put, is three things you must do to make money in the stock market. And it's this kind of stuff. But here's the other thing that's great. Tyler, you can shoot your own uh, people who work with you. But, of course, Tyler's book is called The Mindless Investor. It's sold out. But if you join us at the webinar, then you can download an absolutely free link to get your electronic copy of Tyler Bullhorn's book, The Mindless Investor. And that's a great deal. But it's also part of our, our mandate to educate people how to do this. And the, one of the things that, Tyler, I think I'll just pat you on the back because I think you've done a brilliant job in really breaking it down so people have fundamentals that they can easily follow, and easy is the right word there. I've got lots of friends who've uh, attended uh, webinars or in the old days, in the old days, eh, Tyler? Seminars. Remember those? Yeah. But, uh, you know, and, and read the book, and it's something that people can follow. So I just want to remind people that uh, three things you must do to make money in the stock market immediately after the show uh, 15 minutes after or so, uh, whatever it is, 10.15 out in Pacific, it's uh, 11.15 Mountain Standard Time. Uh, they're going to do, of course, it's got to be limited. Just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and sign into it. But also, as I say, you can get a link to the Mindless Investor, and it explains exactly this uh, this approach. Uh, Tyler, as I said earlier, uh, it's an approach that seems so much more gear, so geared to the markets today when there is so much unusual activity. Yeah. And, you know, the simple things work the best. So I'm going to like it's it's three things. That's really if you can do those three things well, then you can do very well in the market. And I'm going to go through each one and show you some examples of what to look for and how I do it. And you can apply these three things to longer term investing, the sort of thing you would do in your retirement portfolio. But also, if you want to be a day trader, if you're one of those people, those millions of new people in the market and you're sitting at home trying to find opportunity, um, I'll show you how to pick them, how to manage risk, and a few other tricks that I've learned in the last 30 years of doing this. But you just said manage risk, and that's uh, music to my ears, as you know. Uh, give us just a couple of hints about managing risk, because I'll tell you, in this kind of environment, if people are entering into investments or trades, you know, tending on your time frame, but you don't have some clue about how to manage the risk, I'm worried for you. That's all I can say. Yeah, and you have to accept that we're not going to be right all of the time. I've, like I said, I've done this for 30 years. I'm wrong a lot still. And that's good. If you recognize that, then you can limit the size of your losses. And when you have a winner, you also have to let those winners work. And, you know, risk management isn't just about not losing a lot. It's also about maximizing profit. And it's so important to not take more risk than you can tolerate because that's what brings your emotions into the equation. If you've taken a position that's too big and you're faced with a, a loss that emotionally you can't handle, then you're not going to sell that stock when the market tells you that you were wrong. 
And this is why people have these dogs in their portfolio that they are hoping will turn around. And two years later, they're still hoping. Well, hope doesn't belong in the market, maybe at church, but not in the market. I'm with you completely. Unfortunately, I'm with you because I've learned that the hard way. <laughs> but let me just come back to just one thing. Give us a couple of hints of what you're looking at now. And again, people have to understand when they hear something like this in a podcast, you've got to apply it to your own personal circumstances. Uh, it's so many aspects of that. What is your risk tolerance? So what is your emotional risk tolerance? All of that. But I'm just asking for an example to give you a better idea how Tyler goes about it. Yeah, so my day begins uh, at 6.30 because I'm on the uh, West Coast. And I have some algorithms running that just look for abnormal activity right out of the chute. So, for example, Friday morning, I could see that some of these crypto stocks, these crypto miners were moving, um, HUT, GRNQ. I don't know much about these companies, but I could tell that something was happening there. And by the end of the day, those stocks had made substantial moves. Now, again, I don't have any privileged information, but I know that the people who follow those the closest probably have good information, and I'm just following them. Um, earlier in the week, it was silver stocks. I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, the silver stocks were doing well. And it's, it's a different flavor every day. Now, you take a very different approach if you're a day trader versus an investor, but uh, in terms of context, it's the same. We're looking for abnormal activity on whatever time frame you want to trade. So if you're a long-term investor, you should be looking at the weekly or the daily time frame. If you're a day trader, we're looking at the two-minute time frame. The concepts are the same. And so when I do my talk after the show here, I'm going to teach some things that you can apply whether you're a long-term trader or a short-term trader or something in the middle. And it just comes down to a step-by-step -step process to identify the hot stocks before the bigger crowd knows about them. You know, one of the big, big keys, I think, is to get educated about how you approach the markets. As you can tell, I'm a fan of what Tyler's been doing. I think uh, go to the webinar, though, today, 1015 out in the Pacific, uh, 115 back in Toronto. You know, if you're going listening from Calgary, Edmonton, uh, 1115. But this is the key here. Get educated about it. Straightforward, by the way. Just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca. Get on for the webinar. But also, for more information, you can also go generally about what Tyler's doing. Go to stockscores.com. But for the webinar, mikesmoneytalks.ca. I want to talk more real estate right now. And one of the reasons is straightforward you have to make a decision. If you're in this sort of inflationary environment, uh, if you're looking at these record low interest rates and then you've got a longer term horizon, I'm not, I'm not saying long like 50 years, I'm saying, what do you think prices are gonna do in three years or in five years? Uh, one of the things about having the supply sh uh, chain shortages is that the building costs go up. I mean, it's not a guarantee. So I'm talking to people who've got a little longer horizon. I'm not talking about traders here. I'm talking about investors. And I want to have a conversation with Justin Smith. He's the president of Hawkeye Wealth. And Hawkeye, of course, this is exactly what they do for a living. Uh, they look out real estate deals, they create them, and they make investments. And Justin, I appreciate you finding time for us. Hey, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with this. Um, you guys have got lots of stuff in the pipe. What are you looking for now, though? I mean, it just gives us the sort of the broad context of what you think, where you think the opportunities are now. Yeah, it's it's certainly more challenging now than it was uh, basically any time in the last decade. As you know, with inflation, hard assets have gotten more expensive, particularly the hard assets that we've gone after, which is we've primarily focused on residential and industrial. Both of those have performed very well, not just before COVID, uh, but through COVID and, and industrial. In industrial's case, uh, even because of uh, COVID, it's, it, it may have even accelerated as e-commerce accelerates. So everything's gotten pricier. Um, but to your point, we're still seeing a lot of money being printed. We're still seeing inflation and that money needs to find, uh, find a home. And it's still finding a home in real estate with record demand. And we think on the basis of probability that there's still quite a bit of upside uh, in these real estate markets. That being said, uh, we also think it's important to, to play a little bit of defense in your portfolios as well, because the world's just just a weird, weird place these days, Mike. 
Well, I mean, obviously, you're making these decisions on behalf of uh, tons of investors. And I just like, a little more specific. Uh, are you looking at are you still looking at industrial or is it the right deal comes up or is it commercial or uh, residential? Uh, and, and, and what, what you know, can you narrow that down or just say, yes, all of the above? <laughs> well, certainly all of the above. We're, we're, we're just finishing up uh, the largest invest industrial deal that we've ever done. And uh, getting the last few investors in, into that. So we, we still love them when we see them. The industrial deals, they don't come by quite as often. Uh, another strategy that we haven't really discussed previously, but I certainly think is, is worth investors' consideration, is investing in the development of apartment buildings in a few key markets across BC, particularly in the lower mainland. And, and what, what are you looking for criteria-wise? I mean, why there? Is, there? is there sort of a little list that all of us as investors can sort of put on our radar, sort of going, okay, this is what I'm looking for? Yeah, it's really it's really supply and demand, like everything on the on the supply. Sorry, demand just comes from population growth, and and the lower mainland is has seen pretty steady population growth since the seventies, and we're not expecting that to change anytime soon. It's one of the most desirable places to live in Canada, even the world, right? So the demand is here. The problem is we've underbuilt new rental housing for decades. Uh, from the Goodman report put out last year, the average age of purpose-built rental apartments in Metro Vancouver was 62, meaning that the average apartment building was built in about 1958. I'm just, I'm not sure where everyone's going to live. And uh, some rentals are starting to come to market. It's just not near enough. And it's hard to bring supply to market quickly because of how challenging it is to move projects forward in a timely fashion in a lot of municipalities. Uh, what about... Um you know, like tenant tenant issues or insurance issues or, you know, all of these things. Do you, obviously, you're going to factor those in, but where are you at with that? Well, it's part of why we think it's a good idea to, to build new. You kind of get a blank slate on the lease agreements. The, the costs have gone up, right? As, as you alluded to, insurance costs have gone up. Uh, what else has gone up significantly is rental rates. And you want to be able to capture that. And one way you can capture it is start with a blank slate on the leasing. So building a new uh, building allows you to put every single lease at market rents or what some developers are even doing now is, is putting the asking rents above market rents and just letting the market rise into what they're asking for. So uh, really, we think it's nice to start with a blank slate and part of why we like the, the development strategy. Well, I think the other thing is, and I just know myself, I, I have some experience, but I, I prefer to let professionals do it. People, I, and, I, and what I mean by that is someone who's got experience. There's, there's lessons to learn when you're out there building or investing, you know, for that matter, any of that stuff. And, uh, but give us a couple of other things. Like I said at the top, and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. If I was going to do like Hawkeye does these private investment uh, projects and private investors get in, but how long should they be planning to be there? I mean, I would think that's a key because I think not matching up your time frame with the project or the or the stock or what have you can be a problem. Yeah, every, everything we do is is long term. Think three, four, five plus years for the deal. One one option for you, of course, is always to to go at it yourself. And and each of the strategies we've discussed. Uh, even today or, or in the past, are all things that you can go and do yourself, right? The, the development strategy in particular is one I'd, I'd, I'd really caution most people, not everyone, but I'd caution most people against. There is a lot of ways to get burned in development. There are so many more, there's just so many more variables uh, than many of the other strategies that we've discussed. So unless it's something that you intend to not do once. It's something that you want to do once, learn from your mistakes, do it again, learn from those mistakes, do it again. And, and you're willing to go through that to learn what needs to be learned to do it well. Then I would say you're better off going another route, uh, something more passive. Of course, as you alluded to, the other main options to work with uh, experienced developers in private deals. And, and that's where our firm comes in. It's our job to go and find the right developer partners and, and vet their deals before presenting them to our investor group. Well, I, I'm certainly in that camp. I mean, I, I, I'm getting old, so I know tons of people who've done this. 
And really, there's a lot of stories. And people who've done a simple reno found out the hard way of maybe some questions they should have asked or, you know, oh, that took an extra six months. Oh, that's great. You know, and and uh, I mean, I've asked tons of developers over the years about things like that to learn. But as I say, all you have to do is a reno. And I think you find some things that it's and you're talking about major projects. So I'm absolutely in your camp that way. And the one thing, though, is kind of interesting is I know you guys are on the look right now. I mean, that's why it's so fascinating to get a chance to talk because you're just doing that. And I'll just tell people they can go to hawkeyewealth.com, hawkeyewealth.com, and they can keep up to date on the latest projects you've got. As you say, you're just closing off your biggest industrial deal, but just to see what's out there. So I would, again, I'll just say hawkeyewealth.com. Justin, I I really appreciate your time. I know you guys are busy right now, but uh, great stuff. Thanks, Mike. I want to go live to the trading desk now. Victor Dare joins me. Vic, I'm looking at this sort of market action. My goodness gracious, uh, there's volatility. That's hardly an insight. But I look at all the different factors that the, one day the market's sort of seemingly paying attention to this. The next day it's seemingly paying attention to that. And it's really created a difficult environment to sort of discern, certainly on the shorter term, what the trend is. Well, I know we previously talked about that in terms of rotation within the stock market, for instance. Uh, but, you know, you, you go back, it, it, take a big picture look at things. You know, over the last 18 months or so, the central banks and governments around the world have been putting about $300 billion per month of new money into circulation. I mean, is it any wonder that things like whether it's stocks or real estate or commodities or inflation, you know, is going up with that amount of money coming into the system? And and there's a lot of disruption. I mean, COVID was an incredible disruption. You know, the, the, the supply chains that we've had around the world that were based on sort of a just-in-time metric uh, have been blown out of the water, you know. So there, there's certainly all of this, these, these competing things. And, you know, at the heart of it, Mike, I, I think markets try to find an equilibrium, you know, where, where buyers and sellers can find a level that they can agree on. And boy, oh boy, that's tough in these markets right now. Well, I'll throw another couple at you because we talked about it last week. I mean, look at those energy prices in, in China or look at the coal price in China. Look at natural gas in Europe. I mean, that's another sort of variable in there. Uh, I'm looking at, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you saw that number about the number of people quitting their jobs in the U.S., quitting their jobs. And we've got a labor shortage. Yeah, the the uh, with all that money coming in and the disruptions that's been going on, and, and certainly the, the world is fascinated, I think, right now with what's happened in the energy market. I mean, uranium are at uh, multi-year highs, you know, coal and energy and so on. The, the, whether it's WTI or gasoline or or natural gas was the big star. But um, I, I've always thought, or I should say, that for the past eighteen months or so, when the argument was about is inflation transitory or is it just or just a short-term thing as we try to adjust to these shortages? I always thought that the real gauge would be if wages increase and stick, you know, because they, they won't go back. If that happens, then we're going to get that pass through to all aspects of the markets that I that I look at. And, yeah, we had three percent of the workforce basically walk out of their jobs in in the month of August because they know they can go someplace else and get a better deal. And that disruption we had uh, this week, um, John Deere Corporation, the guys that make tractors and so so on, 10,000 people are on strike down there. So, yeah, there's there's this new disruption uh, uh, within the labor force. And uh, it seems like there's a lot to keep track of, if I could put it that simply. Well, and, and and I agree with you. Labor was going to be one of the things. Rents and labor were the two things I was keeping an eye on. And you look at that labor shortage and you look at the demand, you look at uh, higher wages coming. And I think Amazon's been a bit of a bailwether, at least in the sort of general retail e-commerce space. Uh, hardly a surprise. But uh, looking at a New York Times report, 350,000 people hired between July and October and the majority of them quitting within a day to a week or two. You know, there's a shortage and you hear that from other people who are doing e-commerce. They don't have those people. And we know the problem in the restaurant business. Uh, This is getting fascinating. Great time 
to be looking for a job. I mean, it's one of the better times that we've had because people need them. And as you say, fascinating stat, 4.3 million people quit their job in the U.S., quit their job in the U.S. in August because they know they can go get a better one with maybe better benefits or better working conditions. From, from my perspective uh, as to, you know, how do I trade this sort of stuff with all of, I, I pay attention to what I call market psychology. And I think there's all of these competing narratives or, or this this churn is my word for it in the markets. You know, I, I guess what I, I'm being cautious here. I feel as though uh, on the commodity thing that there is a psychology right now that commodities are going to the moon. You know, where we're surging and obviously the prices are there and, but it's like it's going to go on forever. And I'm also just in my heart of hearts. I'm usually from Missouri, you know. Okay. Prove it. I'm not sure. I, I, I think maybe it's BS. Maybe that's not going to happen. Um, I don't want to be short the commodities here. I'm just thinking that it's had a very hot run. Everybody in his dog is kind of fascinated by it. I think maybe we get a little, uh, we could easily see a correction there. I'm just being being cautious here, Mike. There's so much to keep track of. So many of these things are maybe competing with one another and, and churning prices. And I I don't even know if the prices that we're seeing are are fake news. Well, I think first of all, that is a great uh, bit of advice. There, there is nothing wrong with being cautious. I I am with you too, by the way, on a personal level. My personal account, I don't need to catch every boat that's leaving the dock. Uh, you know, it's been a good run here. I think caution is absolutely warranted, uh, you know, depending on your own personal financial circumstances. Uh, if you're getting older, you might especially pay attention to that. I do think there's long-term trends in play, but I'm cautious here with you, Vic, and I think that's a great place to leave it, that, you know, people should really examine the risk profile all the time. But this is a period, especially with the cross-currents that you've just alluded to. And another great thing they can do is just, hey, just keep going to victoradare.ca. You'll keep them up to date. They'll figure out. They don't have to, as I say, catch every twitch, but uh, you'll keep them on the, the straight and narrow. So much appreciated, Vic. Mike, uh, thank you, and talk to you again next week. VictorAdare.ca. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, and I always like the Goofy Awards that are sure to bring vitriol and hate in response. You know, it was, I guess it was literally decades ago when I first understood that no one says thanks for pointing out that the emperor has no clothes. And that's more true than ever in this age, as, as Bernie Saunders actually calls them, fringe ideas, radical ideas, extremist ideas going mainstream. Maybe I should heed Einstein's warning. Political passions, once they've been fanned into flame, exact their victims. So I'm going to put my head on the chopping block, but I got to tell you, I'm doing it chuckling to myself about the virtue signaling crowd that's setting to getting ready to descend on Glasgow, Scotland in two weeks for the COP26, the latest climate fest. Does the spectacle of the private jets spewing CO2 emissions, landing, the tens of thousands of attendees whose contributions to the proceedings never come close to matching their enormous climate footprint in the trek to Glasgow ever get old? I mean, we've seen this drama play out for 30 years. And declarations which are long on virtue signaling and very short on practicality. If carbon emissions are the calamitous danger they state, it makes me wonder if any of these people have ever heard of Zoom instead of flying around the world. That alone would reduce emissions by more than turning off all the idling cars in Ottawa for a year. What's impressive, though, is that the politicians, the media, climate activists never seem to be embarrassed by their own actions, including in this case, in the finest of elitist traditions, did you know that COVID protocols are going to be relaxed? Attendees don't have to be fully vaxxed. Under the regulations specifically for this event, delegates from what are called the red list countries who only have to quarantine in hotels for five days if they've been fully vaccinated, 10 if they're not. There'll be no requirements for attendees coming from what are designated as amber or green list countries to isolate on arrival in the UK, even if they're not vaccinated. So here's the question you should be asking. Why the relaxation of COVID vaccination mandates or travel restrictions or other protocols? And the answer from the UK government is that the climate emergency and potential catastrophic consequences are more important than those restrictions. Remember when President Joe Biden, at the height of the Delta variant spread, called climate change the world's biggest health risk? 
In September, White House climate advisor Gina McCarthy called climate change a health emergency. Now, I'm only mentioning this because the probability is increasing that the next set, next set of societal restrictions will be under the rationale of public health and safety in order to prevent climate catastrophe. As Mariana Macazato, she's a professor at the University College London, states in quotes, we may need climate lockdowns to halt climate change. That might mean governments limiting private vehicle use, banning consumption of red meat, etc. We must do capitalism differently to avoid that, end of quote. Or as our prime minister says, we need to reimagine it. But then again, you might also want to consider the words of H.L. Mencken in quotes, the urge to save humanity is almost always a false face for the urge to rule it. Power is all uh, what all messiahs and politicians really seek, not the chance to serve. Well, at least don't say you weren't warned. That's all the time we have this week. Just a reminder, go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. The Tyner Bullhorn uh, seminar, webinar rather, is going to start at uh, in about 15 minutes, 10.15 Pacific time, 11.15 Mountain time, and you can do the rest of the calculations. But in the meantime, hey, I, do me a favor. Tell people to go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and they can find the podcast there. I think it's important that uh, at least the conversation is broadened. And that's my goal. I don't need to change anyone's mind. I don't care about that. But we're missing certain facts. I think we're missing perspectives that I think just benefit us all to put them out there. I'm a big believer in let's start asking some questions. And you can find that, by the way, at Money Talks Tweets or Michael Campbell's uh, Money Talks on Facebook or, as I say, mikesmoneytalks.ca. In the meantime, I do appreciate you listening and I hope you have a terrific weekend. Subscribe to the Money Talks with Michael Campbell podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your on-demand audio for the complete show, daily podcasts, and more.